Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. I'm your host Ellie Mae Taylor and I'm joined as ever by my trusty sidekick Jesse Billington to review the F1 season so far. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, yeah, back from holiday. We're into the, the F1 holiday period now. We're into the summer break. All the teams are away from factories. Drivers are enjoying their summer holidays and uh, I'm still at my desk podcasting. Yeah, how did we get, how did that, how did we get there? It, it's the summer break for the drivers of the teams, but not for the people that make the media around the sport. That's the way it works. Yeah, I, I could maybe do with one. My brain is starting to... Get a little bit frazzled from just a constant slog. Yeah, it's very, very tired because obviously we both have full-time jobs aside from this. So we do this. We It's literally like we close one laptop and open up the other. <laughs> yeah, or often in my case at least have both open at the same time. So I'll swap from writing news for Classic R Weekly and then jotting down a few notes for the F1 and then going back to writing a road test of a Shelby Cobra and then go back to writing notes for the F1. It's a wild, wild world. But the fact of the matter is we've broken the back on the F1 season. Uh, 12 races down, 10 to go. So, uh, yeah, we've, uh, we're, we're definitely halfway, at least, calendar-wise and race number-wise. Yes, and so we've decided, because it's summer break and it's we're only just over halfway, we've decided to go over the data, some statistics, and see them and put together that and... Basically, we're going to grade the 21 drivers that have taken part in the season this far. And we're going to start off with the team that is trailing the standings, which is AlphaTauri, and work our way up from there. So we'll start off with the 2023 new boy, which is Daniel Ricciardo. And there isn't much to go off in terms of data for him. He's only been in two races this far, currently sitting bottom of the order as a result, and is Average qualifying position is 16th. Average race position is 14.5. I'll just add there what we mean by average qualifying and race positions is I've done a bit of maths. Well, Excel has done a bit of maths. I have not. Uh, We've taken all the drivers qualifying and race positions and averaged them out. So that's why you'll see some of the drivers will have something like, well, like Ricardo, it's 14.5. And as well, this excludes any sprint data as well so it's just literally qualifying as we know it and the race as we know it um but obviously as well uh belgium we we had the uh sprint which had saw ricardo's best uh qualifying and race uh qualified in 11th and then finished the sprint in 12th in 10th how do you think these two race weekends have gone for ricardo I think they've been a strong return for him, certainly. He's not dominated Sonoda in the way that I think we were expecting him to come in. We were expecting him to come in and immediately start sort of bagging P8s and P7s in that car. And I think that's given the abilities of this year's Alpha Tauri, an unreasonable assumption to make. Um, equally, you've got to allow a bit of time for him to get back into the sport, get back used to this chassis as well. This isn't like a case of he's simply getting back into a car that he hadn't driven for a few weeks. This is a car that he's never experienced and a style of Alpha Tauri he's never experienced either. So it's, yeah, very big ask for him. But he's done all right, all things considered. Whether or not you think he should have been the one to come back into the sport or whether you think that swap should have been made, regardless, he's not 
been terrible in that seat for certain. And the form is still there. The form is still strong. And I think as he gets more comfortable, we'll see a closer comparison between him and Yuki. But I think after just two race weekends, it's a little too early to call, certainly. And I think we've also got to factor in that neither of his weekends have been particularly clean whether that's due to external circumstances or his own fault. You know, he got into Q2 at Hungary and then was hit right at the start of the race. And then in Belgium, he did a quick enough time to get into Q2, but then exceeded track limits and ended up 19th. And realistically, in an AlphaTauri, you aren't going to get much further up the grid if you start near the bottom of the grid. So it's really hard to sort of really I guess look at how well he's really done when it hasn't been all that clean for him yeah two races or two race weekends where yeah Bottas sort of um not even Bottas bowling it was just things going a bit awry in Hungary that seemed to be the problem there and yeah like you said his qualifying in Spa could have been tidier and I think that was something he possibly brought on himself it wasn't the easiest qualifying conditions and again still getting used to the chassis spa is a very demanding circuit i think you've got to give him a bit of bit of sort of credit where it's due in this instance but yeah it's the alpha tower i think is like you said it's one of those cars that if you qualify it well you stand a chance of defending and holding on to a points place or a higher position than it might otherwise deserve but certainly on race pace and its ability to jostle within a pack it just gets left behind by the field and all of a sudden you've got a mountain of work to do so yeah, maybe qualifying is going to be something we see Daniel come strong on towards as this season goes on. He's got a sensible enough head and enough race campaigns under his belt to know that potentially what he needs to focus on is his Saturdays and then he will might even develop a really strong sort of defending style of driving as the season develops. We know he's really strong when it comes to braking. He was sort of always referred to as last of the late breakers. So there's every chance that... Um, we'll see that come sort of back into play as he tries to defend from positions should he qualify strongly. But uh, yeah, for now though, I think it's it's early days, but there's promise there. I think if we were to assign him a letter grade on sort of the, the arbitrary scale that I laid out of um, A star A, B plus B, C plus C, D, E, F, where are you, where are you aligning Daniel Ricciardo? I would say a C. It's well into the passes but he hasn't done anything i guess outstanding to get anything better than that but also it's how do you grade someone who's just had two races and a sprint you know yeah i i was going down very much the same line i was going to sort of it's it's passing at the moment it's it's good stuff it's what you expect to see from him but there hasn't yet been that little sparkle that little reason shown publicly certainly as to why he's back in the sport obviously we um we heard rumor of it and tell of the numbers that were portrayed in the tire test after silverstone which was very sort of fundamental in getting him his seat back but obviously we didn't see that we don't have those numbers to work off of and sort of see that's where the sparkle is but there's been a level of competence shown that's worthy of a C grade, certainly. So we'll settle with two Cs on the board for Daniel Ricciardo. And ahead of Danny Rick on countback is the man he replaced, Nick DeVries. Yes, he's had, what, 10 races with AlphaTauri before he was dropped after Silverstone for Ricciardo. His averages are lower than Daniel Ricciardo's, but only just. 
for qualifying, it's 16.9, and his race finish averaged out to be about 14.9. Out of the 10 race weekends he attended, he got into Q2 four times, but had no Q3 appearances. How do you rate someone who has been dropped mid-season when, if we're honest, it wasn't all down to performance? It's a really tricky one because I think De Vries deserved to have a bit longer to prove himself in that seat, almost certainly. And I think there were factors beyond driver performance that possibly swayed the choice to bring Daniel Ricciardo in, his ability to develop a car, his ability to help structure a team, and also the fact that he's just incredibly marketable. Like You've just got to look at how easy it is going to be for Red Bull and AlphaTauri to sell DR3 merch. That's going to be some much-needed revenue streams, especially for AlphaTauri, when they are not looking to come out of this season particularly strongly and will need all the money they can get going into the next one. So, yeah, when you're pitting Nick DeVries against very much an F1 powerhouse, the character that cemented Drive to Survive, it's an unfair comparison. But when it comes to driving, Nick never did anything wrong. But he no. never did anything right either. There was nothing stellar. There was none of those spectacular moments. Those bits where you go, hey, hang on, what's he doing up there? Those, even I'd go so far as to say even Logan Sargent has had those moments where you go, oh, go on, my son. But with Nick DeVries, there was just never that moment. There was never that little thing that goes, ah, so that's what we spotted him. There was never that moment that followed up the hype from Monza last year. And I think that, yeah, perhaps he could have done with another 10 races to prove himself at the end of this season if he was dropped. Fair income. But yeah, I think at, at, from where we're looking at him now, it's possibly too early, but I think we can see the start as to why people were thinking that way at least. But it's it's tricky to try and rank him after just over essentially half the season done. I think that's the tricky thing in that he hasn't really done anything wrong. He wasn't crashing. You know, this wasn't, like Daniel Kvyat in a Red Bull torpedoing Sebastian Vettel, you know. He didn't cost the team any money in terms of crashing or anything like that. It was just, he was just there. But then, it's, I guess, again, it's hard to have those stand-up performances when you're in an Alpha Tauri, which is now the worst car on the grid. Mm. Um, the only standout moment that I really remember from Nick DeFries. And I think he ended up finishing something like 17th. It wasn't even that high and it was Miami. And he did, I think it must have been, oh, I can't remember what terms they are now in. You know, Miami, just before the last really, really long straight, not the final corner into the um, start finish straight, but the one before that. You go down think, the really long straight with the DRS, then you go into a hairpin turn, isn't it? And then you've got so a, you a really a like squiggly left, bit, and then a left right onto the sort of um, back the front straight start finish line bit, isn't it? Yeah, it's somewhere around there, sector three. Yeah, <laughs> um, he did a really good overtake on. I think it was Kevin Magnussen, and it was one of those like. If you watch Formula E, it was one of those type of overtakes that like really sort of really pinched the other driver, but left them enough room 
And like in Formula E, they probably would have like collided or something. Because you can't do that with a Formula One car because you lose a bit of your car and your downforce is gone. Um, or your aero is gone. And he just maneuvered that car so well. But then that was that's the only moment that I can really think of. I do vaguely recall it. It was one of those brief moments where you- there was all a sort of flurry further down the grid of action all of a sudden at Miami and he found himself wound up in it. And all of a sudden, I think the Hasses weren't on the right tires. They were sort of failing through the conditions and he had this moment to sort of prove, Oh yeah, I can make some sense here and look good. And it, it was great because he, he raced another driver and it wasn't simply a case of, he just drove past them. There was a battle. There was like a, a clear pushback from the Hass against him and he had to actually work for that place. And he did, like you said, show that sort of that Formula E track positioning, that thinking it out through the corner, putting the other driver where they aren't going to have an advantage on track, which was, it was good. It was that little glimpse of good from Nick de Vries, but is one little glimpse enough over 12 races? No. 0.8% or whatever it works out to be or something. It's or 0.8% or something over the races. You've done a little glimpse. But I did see him at the London E-Prix. He was on the grid. So he looked well. That's a compliment, yeah. 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 I mean, I think ultimately he must have come into this role knowing that it was a bit of an experiment. It was going to be a a bit of a trial. And I want to say he's won favour with Formula E teams coming out the back of this. Or he's a champion in that sport. He is still a very good driver and i think that any formula e team worth their salt will be able to look past what he was able to or not able to achieve that alpha tower because it is a pig of a chassis no one's going to look good in it danny ricardo is already proving that it's tricky to look good in an alpha tower any sort of level-headed formula e principal will be going go on then come join us at mahindra come join us at maserati come join us at whoever needs a driver for the next season because he's he, going to be a solid drive. That's who he was talking to, the CEO of Mahindra. So we'll wait and see what happens there. Because yeah. of course, Formula E's calendar season has just ended, which means their silly season begins with all the drivers hopping and chopping. So it's exciting times there. So if I had to force you to put a letter grade on Nick De Vries then across this season, I'd still put him. At a C, because I don't know. I'm just thinking back to like GCSE times, and like he would have done. He's done enough for like a a, a pass. There's nothing. He hasn't really done anything wrong, but it's not. There's nothing outstanding to then get him anywhere higher up the grades. There's not been those little wow moments that really stick out, those ones that immediately jump out. You have to dig back through and go, what race was it? What corners was it? You have to really try and pick through to try and find a moment, which sort of means that it's not quite that C-plus territory. So it's, yeah, I'll I'll agree with you there and also go for a C for Nick DeVries, which I think that's, that's quite a fair judgment of his performance this year. Though with the total points haul for Alpha Tauri so far, it's Yuki Sonoda. 
Yes, and whilst his two teammates have a qualifying average that would see them out in Q1, Sonoda's qualifying average would actually get him into Q2, as his is 13.9. In fact, Sonoda currently has a 50% chance of getting into Q2 or further, due to the fact that he has reached Q2 six out of the 12 times this season. With just the three points finished this season, Sonoda currently finds him 17th in the driver's standings. But if you look at his performance in terms of where he sits, if you put if you put all the driver's averages, average race finish in order, he actually finishes in four, he actually he's actually in 14th in those standings as he's finishing an average of about 12.8. And considering he's in the worst car on the grid, that average puts him above both the Alfa Romeo drivers, both hash drivers his teammates and Logan Sargent. If that makes sense to you, it's not bad going. No, it does make sense when you when you look sort of do the average of their race finishing positions across the season. He has been remarkably strong and has shown a brilliant ability to not only keep the Alpha Tauri where he's qualified it, but sometimes push it a bit further. I think it's easy to look back on his most recent results, Spa and Belgium, with a bit of disdain. Certainly um not spa in belgium hungary and belgium rather um if you especially if you look at hungary he suffered in the pit stops there he wasn't on the favorable strategy he had a really slow pit stop and he lost a lot of places there so that sort of throws his average and certainly his average against daniel ricardo as well it's you've, you've got to really sort of take those two results with a big pinch of salt as much as you take danny bricks with a pinch of salt because it's just two results but yeah his ability to sort of put that car where it has no right being essentially towards the top end of that sort of midfield is really quite impressive and he's solidified why he's ended up in formula one i think he was a bit of a rogue choice coming into it uh when he left f2 he wasn't sort of necessarily the fastest or the most sort of accomplished driver coming out of it as a series but he once he's had that sort of season with Alex Albon training him as well and now he's found his feet he's found his form he's found his pattern with the sport he's proving to be I don't want to say a complete natural he's still having to work at it but a lot more things are coming to him naturally which is what we really want to see there's been this brilliant development of him as a young driver which is rare to see with Red Bull they don't often develop their younger drivers their drivers in Alpha Tauri you either sink or swim you either make it into Red Bull or you're told to go away and Yuki has sort of bucked that trend rather interestingly and it's promising it's really promising I know that um, on the Belgium review Jacob accused me of essentially being on the Yuki Soda hype train but I think it's quite a fair thing to be on he's he's been driving worthy of having a, a train of hype behind him I'd say well if you look at the first what is it five races he finished 11th or higher this was the thing yeah he was finishing pretty much bang in the middle of the pack in the slowest car on the track that is worthy of note certainly and again is testimony to possibly the work he had done with the team in the off season obviously through that period of time the team is developing the car he was when they started developing that car essentially midway through last season he was the driver they knew they still had with them they would have been working with him to develop that car it's clear that the work he's put in has meant that he's got a chassis he's rather more comfortable with he's obviously found a way that he can communicate to the team what he wants from a car as well and that's as key an element being a formula one driver 
as it is being able to drive the car quickly around on track. There was an interesting comparison. I think it was, I can't remember who was making this comparison, but it was a comparison between Mika Hakkinen and Ayrton Senna. And they said that if you were to put Senna and Hakkinen in identical cars and put them out on track, they would be toe-to-toe. They would be near a cigarette paper between them. The difference was was that Senna had an ability to communicate to his engineers and to his team. He had a stronger grasp with the English language, seems like a sort of rather poor way of putting it, but he was able to accurately relay what he found around a track. You could give him a blank map of the circuit, send him out to do a couple of laps, he'd be able to come back in, fill in what gears he's using, what speeds he's going into corners, where the car's being light, which bits the car need addressing for each individual part around the circuit. And I think it was one engineer or team principal they were speaking to said, Mika couldn't do that. He had to talk you through it. He wasn't able to put it down in writing. He had to very much think his way through it and then try and express it to you. And I think with Yuki, we're finding he's now shifting much more to that center style where he's able to communicate that. He's able to give the constructive feedback that makes you a more rounded driver within the sport. And that's, again, something that is really promising to see is his development beyond the track. I mean, if you think about when he first started to now, you look at how far he's come. It's a, it's quite a big jump. He's matured so much. Um, and yeah, I just, I think a lot of that was probably the help of Alex Alban last year. Um, and he is also now, I'd say, unless we just don't hear his radio message, messages anymore, he's less angry, I'd say, on he's track. definitely sort of calmer and more structured, I'd say. I think he still gets angry, but I, you've also got to bear in mind that that anger is the fact that he is driven to do well. He gets annoyed when he knows he could have done better or the team could have done better. I think there's very much a sign of his ambition, certainly. And as well, when you've got so much un- un- uh, adrenaline going through you, mm. you you say things off the bat that you perhaps wouldn't say in normal circumstances. But I think where he has been able to calm down, that has actually helped him in his racing as well, because then he can think more about the race. He can see where he's going to sort of be going in the race and think about it rather than sort of get het up and then that, getting so sort of het up and angry then leads to mistakes. There's now less of that because he's got a bit more of a sensible head on him. Yeah, that's he's he's racing calmly. He's not driving angry. I know that even if you try and do sort of normal household tasks while you're in a foul mood, you'll drop things, you'll put things down in the wrong place, you'll forget what you're doing and nothing ever works, right? And that's trying to do a normal household task. So if you're trying to drive a 1,000 horsepower racing car with a myriad of switches and controls on the steering wheel while 19 other people are on track with you and there's a guy talking in your ear. Trying to do that while angry is almost certainly going to be quite a sort of a heavy task. And there's been, yeah, like you, you like you said, a very good turnaround in his on-track demeanour that's been a, had a knock-on positive effect in his driving. I think as much as we heap praise on Alex Albon for sort of his driver coaching, I think it's fair to also say that Pierre Gasly has possibly had a good rub-off on him as well. Like he spent a lot, Gasly joined the sport in 2017. He's a relatively experienced driver in that regard. And 
I'd like to think the the relationship they shared was clearly a strong one. I'd like to think that there was a, a good flow of information from Gasly to Sonoda as well, saying, try this when you're doing this, have a look at perhaps thinking about this. I like having my car set up X way. And it might have offered just an extra bit of insight that would have been useful in his development. So all that aside, or with all that in mind, rather, a letter grade for Yuki Sonoda, you're going to stamp his paper. What are you giving him? Uh, I was, oh, I'm trying to give him a B or a B plus. I'll give him a B. I, yeah, it's it's above C. It's above that standard pass mark, and it's above yeah. the point where there's been glimmers of good, like little bits you remember. He's been consistently good. He's not been good with moments of spectacular. He's not been amazing. It's been just really good, beautifully competent, and also there's been a marked development in his work, and I think it's worth sort of rewarding that to a certain extent as well. So, yeah, it, two two Bs. Yeah, it's up to Imola. He was very, very consistent. And then afterwards, that was when all the other teams started developing their cars, and it seems uh, that the sort of where then Yuki then comes is a bit more erratic because now that becomes... Alpatari is slowly getting worse. Mm. It's worse against the rest of the field, certainly, and equally it becomes very circuit dependent as to how well it performs. So there's a huge amount more factors at play, but the work he's, work he's put in and the effort he's showing is certainly, certainly commensurate of a B. So it's two Bs from us, and that sees us wrap up Alpha Tauri. Following on one Alpha team with the other, it's Alpha Romeo on triple the points all of Alpha Tauri behind them. But what of their drivers? Well, for car number 24, it's been an interesting start. Zhou Guan Yu. Yeah, see, I would say like the Alpha Tauri boys, it's hard to judge how well a driver is doing when the car is not the best. I think, again, for Zhou Guan Yu, it's neither been outstanding nor bad i mean he's gotten out of q1 five times he did have that mega quality in hungary to qualify fifth um and unfortunately uh had the really poor start where his castle anti-stalled um but other than that we haven't really seen much of him um, I mean, he's had two points finishes, average race finish about 13.5. And it's, I don't know, to be honest, I guess the best way to judge him is against the only man in equal machinery, and that's his teammate, who's Bottas. And Bottas's average qualifying is 14.2, Joe's is 15th. And race finish, Bottas is 13.3 and Joe's is 13.5. So it's incredibly close, mm. really. And in terms of inter-team battles, Bottas is currently beating Joe by one seven point. To five, seven to five mm. in qualifying, and then eight to four in the races. But like we said, if you actually look at the averages, they're incredibly close. Yeah, they've been. I want to say they've been able to go toe-to-toe through this season so far. There's certainly been moments where the pendulum swings between the two. One seems to have the upper hand over the other. One seems to be having a good race while the other seems to struggle. And certainly you mentioned his 
both drivers are having a stellar qualifying rule, but I think it will be sort of easier to mention both Joe and Bottas as we go along for Alfa Romeo because they're so closely tied on points. Um, they both had stellar qualifying in Hungary, but Alfa Tauri couldn't explain why. Alfa Romeo. Alfa Romeo even couldn't explain <laughs> why. And that is probably the bigger issue there. It's like that all of a sudden you've got a car that's going really well and you can't explain it because you can't then replicate that. Any good science experiment has an element of replicability to it. I think that's a correct word. Uh, the idea that you can simply reproduce that again and again and again and will by and large get the same amount of results or results that are normally distributed. But Alfa Romeo just sort of pulled out a P5 and a P7, wasn't it? And then yeah. all of a sudden... Yeah vanished it didn't help that joe had it was a brake sensor failure coming off the line in hungary that his car then had like a safety system that tripped out and went into anti-stall so you can't go too fast if you've not got brakes which is sensible enough but rather ruins your start when you're in p5 and ruins the start of those behind you but that's not his fault i think everything he's done this season has been good and the one race for me that stands out for him and this isn't like a moment in a race it is the race as a whole has to be canada I distinctly recall Joe's Canada being something quite impressive. I couldn't be completely wrong. I could be thinking of Canada last year, but... So I thought you were going to say Spa. Because I think, although he didn't get into the points, he had quite... I think he had quite a few good battles with drivers. Hmm. Canada... Canada, he was a lap down. Oh. I was just thinking, I was thinking it was Bottas that was the other Alfa Romeo that was doing quite well then. So Canada, he finished in 16th. Yeah. So Spain finished 9th. Okay, possibly it might have been Spain then I was thinking of. Uh, he was my driver of the... He was my winner for Spain, I think. Mm. Yeah, because he was a good few seconds up the road from... Gasly and sort of running pretty equal between the two Alpines actually because you had Ocon ahead of him so it's not a not a bad position to really sort of take home there yeah, I it's... think Alfa, Alfa Romeo are kind of in their own little world mm. you can't it's they're so hard to like look at both drivers performances because I would say both drivers are both very good but they're nowhere in sort of they're nowhere near any other team whether that be they're not near sort of alpha tari that's below them yet they're not really always that near sort of hassan williams i guess their closest battle maybe is hassan williams but i don't know i don't i don't really put them in that battle either i just see them as their them they, being in sort of a world of their own. They very much lope along behind Hassan Williams when it comes to the team battle. And yeah, they are just in their own little bubble doing their own little thing. So it's you've got nothing else to pin them against. You've got not they didn't really have like a strong start to the season where you could at least sort of compare their first five races like we could do with Sonoda. And they haven't really come onto form like you can do with McLaren in their most recent sort of three, four races. So it's it's just such a tricky one to try and pin anything to. I think if I were to try and sum it up, we'll sort of jump straight to the letter grades because I'm I'm struggling to think of much else for them, which is possibly the worst sign to give. But I think for Joe, I'm going to go for a C plus. I think it's been a it's been a 
a solid performance, but there's been moments where it's been significantly better than a straightforward C grade. There's been moments where you've gone, oh, look at that, it's done well. Like his qualifying in Hungary, his results, like you said, in Spain, those moments where he's been racing wheel to wheel against someone. He was knocked off in Spain against by Sonoda and was still able to come back and finish in the points. So there's there's something there that's working every now and then, I think. So for me, it's a C plus for Joe. I don't want to agree with every... So far, we've just agreed. <laughs> we, yeah, we have very, very much agreed on everything so far. But yeah, I agree, I agree with you in that... Because obviously I put De Vries in with, and Ricardo as a C, which I think he's done a much better performance than them, but I put Sonoda as a B, and I don't think Joe Gordon he was quite there. Yeah. So yeah. It's a C. Uh, yeah, a C You're going to go for a C plus then. But when it comes yeah. to Bottas, I would argue that he should have done better. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to say C. Because for me, I think Joe Guan Yu is doing a better job. Mm. In I, I was thinking about this. And in some respects, do you think he's a little, uh, Joe Guan Yu is a little bit like Antonio Giovinazzi in that he's a good driver, but is just going to be overlooked? Going to be overlooked because he's against a driver that's had like a phenomenal history and track record precede him. <sighs> yeah, I could also see Joe Gonyu winning the 24 Hours of Le Mans as well at some point. <laughs> I can definitely see Bottas doing the same thing. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point when Alf when Sauber becomes Audi, and I don't think it has any intention really of keeping Bottas or Joe, I can see both of them heading off and doing endurance probably together they seem to get on quite well as a pair which is a really nice thing to see like Bottas has certainly taken Jondra's wing and so looks after him looks out for him gives him the right coaching and everything I can I can see the two of them possibly sticking with their Ferrari powertrains and going when we go GT racing or work racing and have just as much fun well that is the thing with Bottas, what is his goal? Why is he still in F1? You know, does he want to get back into a better team? Does he still want to get podiums? What does he want from this sport? Because obviously Raikkonen went from Ferrari down to Alpha and he just famously said it's just more like a hobby for him. Is that the same for Bottas? So, you know, what, what does he want? Yeah, where's his drive? Where's his ambition? I think with... With Kimi, again, everyone was sort of surprised that he was either very much a top-flight team man or nothing. Like, he would either be at Ferrari, he'd be at McLaren, he'd be winning, or he would be doing WRC for the sheer hell of it. And then he sort of popped himself into Alfa Romeo, did a few seasons there and left. And I think we're probably going to see the same with Bottas as a case of he's going to wrap up his contract here, take his money and um, enjoy cycling with Tiffany and making gin and holding cycling races and probably dabble in endurance racing. Yeah, being naked, which he's been doing again already. I've seen photographs (laughs) of him circulating. He's absolutely stark as once more. Put some clothes on, man. But yeah, I think it's... I can't see his drive or ambition. And equally, when he, I can understand when he was at Mercedes, he, he was pushing for world championships, but you're not going to do that at Alfa Romeo. And I don't think you're hanging around till it becomes Audi Salba, Salbi, Alba. And it's, so you're not really got a chance there either. So it's, 
yeah, unfortunately, he could be doing better. So, yeah, C's across the board, I think, for Bottas, is it? Yeah, I think so. Wunderbar. Just two points ahead, though, of the Italo-Swiss outfit. It's the American team, and they are still struggling to come to terms with the sport, which seems odd, especially after seven years. Last year's star driver isn't shining so bright this year. So what's going on with Kevin Magnussen? Two points finishes, three DNFs, has failed to get out of Q1 seven times, whilst his teammate has made it out nine times. I mean, this is almost sounding like a really bad version of the 12 Days of Christmas, but the only driver who has a worse finish average than Magnussen is DeFries and Sargent, and that's only marginally. Magnussen's average is 14.6, whereas DeFries, as we said, was 14.9, Sargent's is 15.9. His teammate has qualified higher than him nine times. The only saving grace, I think, for Kevin Magnussen is that Hulkenberg and him are pretty much on equal terms in term in terms of race performance. Magnussen is 14.6, whilst Nico is 14.4. I mean, you think last year he was slightly better than Mick? I mean, he didn't crash as much as Mick. Mm. Or he was relatively like he came into it and was matching Mick then. Whilst Nico has come in, and I would say certainly in qualifying, has outshone him. Yeah. When you look at how Kevin came back in after a year away and took the fight to Mick and by and large sort of started beating him pretty early on, obviously had that P5 in Bahrain last year. There was that sort of weird moment where all of a sudden I was like, ah, so good. Um, But Nico's come in and hugely outperformed Kevin and yeah there's just this there's a difference between the two that's stark and I think both are driven both are weirdly have seemed to be getting on quite well together as a team which I think everyone sort of had their their doubts about um but yeah it's just Something about this year's car doesn't sit right with Kevin. It doesn't match his driving style. He is a very fast and very talented driver, but he he needs the right chassis under him. You, when you look back at his McLaren days, he was very fast and very capable, but that was when it was a good chassis. Was it McLaren? I think it was McLaren or Renault, wasn't it, when he was really He got third, didn't he? He got his first podium with McLaren. Yes, on his first yeah, his debut, team. yeah podium on his debut with McLaren wasn't it yeah and he was quick but again that was a good McLaren he had underneath him so I think it's a case of when the car isn't great he often has to fight it a bit more and that's where it becomes his downfall I think that's but then that has around a during a race is just shocking it has no race pace it can qualify decent we've certainly seen that with his teammate but neither of them seem to be able to keep the car together during a race. It just falls apart around them. And that's no fault of theirs. That's that's just not been the right development in the car or the fact that the team each weekend failed to set it up correctly. They've done this before it's, as well. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like 2020, where Haas didn't have a particularly great car and they would just leave their drivers out so that then, like, Magnuson or Grosjean would be, like, third, and then suddenly they'd, t- they'd left them out way too long. Their tyres would then drop off drastically. Everyone would be overtaking them, and they'd just fall back down to the bottom. It, that's what it reminds me of. 
Haas in 2020, it's great you mentioned 2020 because that was the one of the year I was going to mention, is they had one very interesting rear suspension setup that seemed to alter as the car got warm as well. This is the crucial thing that that, that Haas seemed to suffer from was as through qualifying it would get warm, the car would, the rear of the car would sort of, the temperature would change and the spring rates would soften and it would sort of squat and sag a bit more and become a lot more compliant. So the longer and longer they ran it, the quicker and quicker it became. So that was why they were able to qualify weirdly high they were able to get p7s and p8s quite easily in qualifying or p6s and p5s at points with that has and it was great because it sort of got warm it squatted it settled it was great and it felt planted under them but then as soon as they went to drive it in the rate and then they would tweak the car to be set up for that at the end of qualifiers the the final stage of q3 they'd go right set it tighten the nuts that's how we're keeping the car and then obviously it would cool down come the start of the race the car feels horrid because it's set up for when it's warm post qualifying and all of a sudden the car was just nowhere under them and like you said they'd then just be left out until their tires died and brought in way too late so they weren't able to even sort of undercut everyone it's it it it's a problem that's beyond the drivers i think at this point and it's really strange that like i said in the little intro bar that this is seven years of Haas in formula one and they still aren't able to get it right it's almost like, can you remember the days when teams like Ferrari would have almost a, a qualifying engine and have a different engine for the race? And so they had basically essentially two different cars for qualifying and one for the race. It's almost, this is what Haas has got. Well, back in the old um, days of sort of Nelson Piquet with the BR, the um, BMW engines, where they used to turn it up to the point that it was producing well over a thousand horsepower. Go right, you get one qualifying lap, and then we're turning the turbocharger off. Otherwise, it would just melt the internals. So they'd do one blisteringly fast qualifying lap, and then just turn it back down to the point the car was able to just about lead the race and get away with it. And yeah, they asked, are able to sort of set the car up really well for qualifying. Boom, there you go, amazing. You've qualified in q2 uh, congratulations what about the race setup what do you mean race setup they 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 only do like half the job and that really seems to be biting them especially this year now we've got sprints coming in they're able to qualify well on the sprint but then the problem is just compounded just as quickly during a sprint as well it it's a problem that really does stem beyond the drivers, but the problem is the drivers, certainly in Kevin Magnussen's case, need a, a, even a vaguely competent chassis under them to try and get something proven. And I, I don't think his performance this year reflects the best we could have seen from him. Even once you take into account the flaws in that chassis, I still don't think it's the best Kevin Magnussen we could see. I don't either. Do you think... Gene Haas needs to put some more money into the team and maybe, or just try and scout people from other teams like McLaren or Aston Martin are doing. They need someone to come in and tell them how to do it. They need someone better in that team. And Renault, well, Alpine have just gotten rid of a huge amount of talent. If I was 
Gunter Steiner, if I was Gene Haas, I would be on the phone with my checkbook open going, you, you, what do you want? Come here right now. I'd be on the phone to Omar now going, look, you're coming in as like a sporting director, a, a, a race weekend controller. You'd be coming in as a position because you have something that goddamn works. I'd be bringing them in. Who's the other fellow that um, Alpine got rid of? Uh, they lost Pat Fry to Williams, but he was more sort of scalped. Yes. But it was their, it was literally um, the sporting director from Renault. Um, it was the sporting director. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that is a... That Alan, is someone, Alan Pemaine. Alan Pemaine, yeah. That is a name that has been in Formula One since the Benetton days. A man with 30 successful years of experience. And that's a key element, successful. He knows how to get small, weird little teams to work and generate results. Haas has no brain power to it in the nicest possible way. Yes, Gunter Steiner is funny when he's on the TV, when he's on Netflix, when he's swearing. It's funny, but it's not generating results. And that needs to change. If I was Gene Haas, I'd be picking up that phone. I'd be calling up Marzaf now. I'd be getting on the phone to Pemain and going, look, you two better get your asses down to the Haas pit garage this weekend because I, I, I'd have Gunter out in his ear. He's, he's not driven to survive. He's not team directed to survive. This team needs something. And I would get those two new guys in, even if they aren't replacing people just yet, I'd have them in so they can see the operation in progress and know what needs to change coming up over the winter before it's too late and next year's car is baked in. That need, that whole team enterprise needs to change because at the moment what it's doing is pissing two pretty decent talents up the wall. And I think, Kevin's just sort of kicked back and knows that this year just isn't going to be it. And there's no point in trying. So I think for me, for Kevin, it's going to be the first D of the day, I think, for me. I'm completely agreeing. <laughs> I was going to give him that too. It's still a pass, but it's not good enough to be in your A to C category. Yeah, it's it's just not there. But yeah, with the lion's share of the points for Haas this season, though, it's little wonder our next driver has made it so far up the standings. Nico Hulkenberg, by contrast, doing very well with very little, which is very much his style, certainly. Immense around one lap. I mean, he's made six Q3 appearances, which is the same as Perez. And mm-hmm. qualified with his second in Canada. But come race day, in the actual races itself, He's only got one point finish. I think the rest of his others come from sprints. Um, yeah. Well, I suppose that um, makes sense because in the sprint, it's not long enough for the Haas to tumble back no. down the order if he's qualified well. Exactly. And that one point, um, the points finish that he did get was Australia. And that was when half the grid obviously failed to finish. Yeah. Um, so I guess the question is do you think? It's the car letting him down come race day. I guess we've already sort of said this partially. Or do you think as well, Hulkenberg needs to work on his racecraft to stay higher up, to try and at least maintain being in the lower end of the points at least? I think what Hulkenberg needs to accept is that that car is not kind to its tyres. That seems to be the major issues of that. It just seems to absolutely lunch whatever compound you put on it. So there's no point in trying to make it last. You might as well fight for as long as possible to stay where you are. 
and throw a weird two-stop strategy in there because it's going to confuse the hell out of anyone that's sort of racing around you on the circuit. All of a sudden, Alfa Romeo, Alfa Tauri, maybe Williams, and sometimes Alpine are going to be looking at you going, what the hell are they doing? And that's going to make life incredibly complicated for them. And that's going to be where, as the underdog team, as Haas are, gives you that chance to sort of fight back through and equally... If you're on a two-stop strategy, it doesn't matter if you cook your tyres. You're getting rid of them not too long after this. Fight for every goddamn place. And I think certainly for Hulkenberg, I think that would be something that would very much fall within his wheelhouse. I don't think it'd be too far outside the realms of possibility for Magnussen. But I'd definitely say even on the face of it, Hulkenberg has made the most out of a bad chassis this year. It's There's not been the super stellar moments. There's been some interesting qualifying, certainly and some decent sprint races but yeah it's it's good from Hulkenberg but there is scope that he could do better I think he needs to have a word with the team to get it though he's certainly quick and he always has been really it's never really been him that's I mean I know we sort of joke about him never getting a podium but that's never really been down to his fault it's always been something externally stopping him. And I mean, Mercedes were looking at him and instead went with Lewis Hamilton. He's a good driver. Yeah. When Mercedes are sat down with driver profiles in front of them going, who the hell do we replace Michael Schumacher with in a team that's starting to come good and has Nicky Lauder on as a technical assistant? And you're sat there with a list of names in front of you. You whittle it down to two drivers. Nico Rosberg, Nico um, Hulkenberg, and Lewis Hamilton. You're putting them in the same breath like that. He is a very talented driver, and I don't think that talent's gone anywhere in the preceding years. It's been refined, it's been shaped in different ways, certainly with having to drive some less than capable cars. But at the end of the day, there is still a raw talent there that he is every now and then putting on show far more than I think his teammate is. So if I were to push you then, Nico Hulkenberg, car number 27, what what grade are you assigning him? I'm giving him a C plus because I think his qualifying is immense, much better than I think that has can really do. But I think I think even though the um has just cooks its tires so early on. I think there's perhaps some he needs to learn his racecraft a little bit more. I'm going to go down a similar line, but be slightly more critical. I'm just going to give him a flat C. I think there is there is definitely a bit more we could have from Nico through the sort of through this first half of the season, and it's annoying we haven't gotten that. And I think that there is scope for him to have done more so it's a, a c plus from you and a c from me so our first slight disagreement which is interesting we yeah. move however forwards and tying Hass for points it's a far more lopsided haul for this team but that's not to say it's another dire year for the grove outfit a totally different approach from the top compared to alpine certainly as well as some insightful openness from james vowels are things looking up for Williams? We'll start with Swamp Sun, Logie Sarge, Logan Sargent. What the fuck is a he unfortunately has the worst qualifying and race finish average of anyone. Um, for his av- for his qualifying average, it's seventeen point eight, and his race finish average is fifteen point nine. 
He's been beaten by his teammate in every qualifying session, and the only race he's come ahead of Albon is the one in which Albon DNF'd. But I'm not going to completely rain on his parade, as because as we know, quantitative data only paints, I guess, half the story. And I would actually say he's not having a bad season at all. No. Given that he is a rookie, he wasn't he wasn't the fully formed article when he left F2 either. He very much sort of tumbled into this F1 seat because I think Williams were a bit too soon in possibly getting rid of Nicholas Latifi. Um, but equally, they didn't have anyone else to replace him, which was odd. So I think it would have been a possibly a better gamble to just stick with Latifi for another season. But instead, they opted for Sargent. He was fresh out of F2 after just getting his super license. I think another year would have done him mighty fine. But instead, they pulled him in and he had a lot to learn very quickly. And he's proven he can learn it very quickly and is beginning to apply it to his driving. Obviously, we've seen a few races go by where it has very much just been schools in classroom sessions for Logan Sargent. Monaco certainly was a a lesson for him in tyre management, wet weather driving, just again, getting used to the car around a fairly demanding circuit. Everything comes at you pretty quick around Monaco. Um, So it's been a challenging start to the season. But as that Williams has developed, as it's gotten good, as it's gotten to circuits where it's comfortable and certainly where he's comfortable, he comes alive in it. And Silverstone is the perfect example of that. You look back at his qualifying where all of a sudden you're going, the hell is he doing? Surely he must have just like straight-lined Maggots Beckett's to get these times compared to usual. But no, he's finding form. He's finding the bits of the car that work for him. He's finding ways of gaining his confidence, sorting out his setups. And it's coming slowly, but it's that development that is really promising to see. And as little as there is to talk about him when it comes to his race results and his qualifyings, especially against Albon, at the end of the day, he is making steps in the right direction. And unlike some of the drivers, which have sort of gotten a bit static and a bit sort of stayed, he's putting the effort in. And that is what I really want to see. And I think that's going to be reflected in my grade shortly. How, how do you feel about Logan Sargent? Well, I'm, I'm just having a look now. And barring the uh, points finish that Albon got in Canada, because Sergeant DNF is there. The other two points positions that Albon has, Logan really hasn't been that far off. Tenth in Bahrain for Albon, twelfth uh, for Sergeant, and that's his first race. Yeah, twelfth uh, debut in a very much pig of a Williams. Like James Ellis has said openly, oh we weren't really too annoyed when all of a sudden there was those press shots of the car dangling from a camera and everyone went, Oh, look at the back end of the car. It's so plain. He goes, yeah, well, everyone's rear diffuser section is quite plain because that's within the regulations. He said, we're most upset about the fact that our mid floor looks nothing like anyone else's. And you can see there's not none of the macro detail. There's none of the micro detail to it. It is bog standard. And we're like, okay, yeah. And you've given that to a rookie and told him best of luck, sunshine. So yeah, He's done well with what they've given him. And for Vowles to have admitted that as well is a key testament to what they know he can do. Yes. And um, as well, um, Silverstone, Alex Alban 8th, Logan Sargent 11th. He was only just out of the points 
it was close as well. Like, like he was hot on the yeah. heels of 10th as well. Like it wasn't like he was two seconds down the road from the points. He was following the last points finisher, finisher across the line. It's like, it's, it's coming. He will score points this season. It's not going to be spectacular, sort of a big haul of points like we see with Albon, but it's, it's going to be a point and that is going to mean so much to him. And it's also going to be a, a true representation of his work and his effort he's put in this year, which I think is good. So if I was yeah. to ask you a grade, a letter grade for Logan Sargent. I'd say a C, because I think he's doing really well. Obviously, he's got room to improve because he's a rookie. Um, but I think this is one of the few drivers where the quantitative data really doesn't match up with how well he is actually doing. The qualitative speaks far louder for him. And on yeah. that level alone, I'm going to give him a B. I'm going to completely sort of start sort of... Fr- I'm going to put it out there. I, I really like what he's doing and given the material he's been given as a rookie that really needed that extra in F2 for what he's produced this year. And like you said, the fact that even when Albon is scoring those points, he's not that far behind. When the Williams is set up right for the circuit, he is pretty close to a guy that, when did Albon join the sport? 2018? No, 19. Wasn't 19. It? Yeah. yeah, 2019. So a driver that had 2019, 20 and 22 so three years experience over him some of that in a very competitive red bull where he was learning from the best to be coming home fairly close to him is not too shabby so a b, i think a b is in my opinion representative so there we and go you've got to think as well how long it took george russell to get a point in that williams as well yeah it took russell and latifi a hell of a long time and then Latifi got it before Latifi Russell. scored higher than, he got it, higher, yeah. higher yeah. than him. Yeah, <laughs> that was Hungary, wasn't it? That was yeah, that was Hungary last no year before last. Hungary twenty one, because then we went to Spa and because twenty twenty two George is already at Mercedes. So yeah, twenty one it was yeah Hungary. They scored like a seventh and an eighth or something. And then George went and stuck it on the podium in Belgium, which was but different circumstances. Um, speaking of the other Williams seat, sitting high in P13 overall in the standings with more points still to come this season, almost certainly, and with offers reportedly from Ferrari and Red Bull, it's all starting to come good for Alex Albon. I think the fact that teams higher up the grid are after him says it all, really, doesn't it? Um, I think he's just extracting the best out of that car, almost every single race weekend he's just he's proving why he should be in this sport obviously he had the year out under when he got sort of dropped from Red Bull and they I'm surprised they didn't put him back in Alphatari but then I guess they had Gasly and Sonoda he had nowhere to go Mm. but I mean, it's just... Well, no, they didn't have Sonoda at that point. They still had... Um, it was Gasly and Danny Kafia, and they were getting rid of Kafia. So would they have... Sonoda in, but that was because of Honda. Yeah. Honda relations. Mm. So they were sort of... Had one hand tied behind their back when they unfortunately got rid of him. But I get the impression they would have liked to have kept him in that Alpha Tower for a bit longer, uh, just like another year. 
and just sort of seen what he could have done because obviously a year down the line we saw well that same year we saw Gasly getting a win in that Alpha Tauri it would have been incredible to see what Albon could have done in the same circumstances as well and there is a lot that he could have still proven I think but he's yeah. proving it all now or even in you know so it's 2020 when uh, Gasly won uh 2021 Gasly got two podiums was it a third in Azerbaijan and I think maybe a third somewhere else. Um, but if you, you think those two as a driver lineup back then, delving into that the data, really... uh, that's 2021, 2022, 2021. Do, 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 do. Where is Pierre Gasly on the list? He got a P3 in Azerbaijan. And that was it. But he had a lot of P4s coming yeah. through. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, there's, there's so much to be said for the way that Albon's career has played out and the fact that it could have played out a lot better. And yeah. But then that's testament to him of how well he's then doing because he hasn't had it easy. And yet he's come back into this sport and now, you mean, if you compare that maybe to Kevin Magnussen and Nico Hülkenberg, yes, they've come in and they've done well, but no, big teams aren't looking at them. Mm. Whilst they're looking at Alex Albin and thinking, oh, maybe we'd quite like him. Yeah, no other team is looking to try and poach Perez, but other teams are looking to try and poach Alex Albon. And that I think is is the real thing. And equally, when you, again, when you say what he's able to do with that Williams, we mentioned it's not a good car. James Vells says every weekend it is not a good car, and we are happy to tell you that we are working with resources that are two decades out of date, and simply trying our best. And Albon is coming away from every damn weekend with the best results that are possible with what is, at the end of the day, the sixth quickest car on the grid. No, what was it? It would be seventh, wouldn't it? We've got um, Alpha Tauri, Alpha Romeo, Haas. So, tenth, ninth, eighth, seventh, seventh quickest car on the grid. And he's often putting it around that midway marker. It's not bad. No. Not so, at all. If I push you for a letter grade for Alex Albon, I'm going to give him a B. Plus. I'm just going to hand out the first A of the evening for mm. AA. I think that the performances that have come out of him, if you were to put him in another car, if you were to put him in the McLaren, if you were to put him in the Ferrari, if you were to put him in the Aston Martin, he's getting those podiums that the top drivers in those teams are. There isn't that little bit that tips, it would tip it over into the A-star. There's not that little extra catch. But yeah, when you ignore the machinery, he's putting in the performances of an A-grade driver for me, I think. Yeah, that's fair, definitely. So that gives him a score of eight and seven. So I'll do the maths quickly and it gives us 15 there. And that moves us into Alpine. Where are my notes there? Um, where did it all start to go wrong? Has it all gone wrong? There's a lot of questions coming out of Vimy and Enstone at the moment. And the biggest is, will they be able to take the fight to McLaren for the latter part of this season? After a P3 in a sprint in Belgium, it certainly seems as though our next driver has found his form in pink. So, Pierre Gasly. I don't know if I know where to start. 
this I mean the, the team itself just seems so sort of erratic at the minute to be in that it's like how do you then even judge their drivers they both had such bad luck as well I mean if I was going to look at Pierre Gassi's performance by himself I I mean I guess you do have to take in what I've just said in, into fact into account but I th- I don't know I thought he would be Barring the third in Spa, I I feel like he just could have done better this season. Um, I feel like Ocon's just. I mean, I think I think I said before the season. I think Ocon will do better than Gasly, and so far, I'm being sort of proven right. I mean, Gasly's not doing too badly. His qualifying performance is what eleven on average, eleven point four, race tenth. But that's, I mean, you've got to think where McLaren were at the start of the season and how poor that car was. Lando Norris's average is the same as Pierre Gasly's, whilst Alpine, I would have argued, was okay at the start, was like a solid midfield team and they've just slowly been going backwards. Well, not even backwards, it's just... They haven't gone forwards with the rest of the field. It's yeah. sort of similar to that Aston Martin argument and the AlphaTauri argument is they haven't kept pace with those around them and it's that sort of a train next to you pulls out of the station you think you're moving, but it's simply the other ones you're being sort of left behind. And, yeah, the develop- I think especially because of the rate of developments the McLaren made, it looked like... Alpine went backwards a lot more than they did. And I was certainly expecting more from Gasly. I think I would have liked to have seen more from him. You were you were correct when you say that you predicted Ocon was going to finish higher than Gasly. It's your sort of year-long prediction is that's how it's going to pan out. And so glad that's coming true. It really helps, obviously, that Ocon got that podium in Monaco. But oh, it's, it's such a hard one to try and get a metric on because of how jumbled and chaotic that team is. The fact that no driver yeah. seems to be able to get a solid weekend in regardless I reckon there could be more from Gasly I think there's been a few too many mistakes here and there just creeping in and it's a it's a C plus drive I don't think it's quite a B grade but it's certainly more than just a straightforward C for me I'm going C I think despite the team just being so erratic at the minute I think he could just be doing better. Um, I guess the one race that comes to my mind is Australia when he took Ocon out and they were on for a very good points haul. Yeah. It was deemed no fault. I think there are things that possibly Gasly could have done to avoid it, but at the end of the day, it was such a maelstrom of, of like chaos that it was tricky to truly apportion the blame for that one it's just one of those annoying things for the team more so than the drivers we were possibly looking on them both differently had they gotten the result they deserved in Australia yes I guess so I think I know people sort of or the team is not portioning any blame on either driver but I think it is a little bit more to Gasly from Australia Mm. 
is just unfortunate. So when it comes to Esteban Ocon, who's had a better season than Gasly, but it's still not been stellar, especially given the, the car that he was given at the start of the season compared to the rest of the field, there could have been a little more. Which in that instance, I think because I expected better of Ocon, I'm going to give him a C purely because I, I thought he could have done more. He's got the most DNFs of anyone with four. Oof. Yeah. Four DNFs in 12 races. That's, you're DNFing out of a third of all races. Yeah. Has anyone predicted him to have the most DNFs over the season? Uh, <laughs> No. Maybe someone will catch up. We'll wait and see. But yeah. So the man with the most DNFs, what what letter are you going to assign to him? I'm gonna give him a C plus because I think he's doing he's done a slightly better job than Gasly. And both his his qualifying average of nine is 9.7 so that will obviously sort of almost consistently sort of or it's more probable that he will be in q3 mm. and it's more probable that he will always that he will be in the points as well because he's got a race uh finish average of 9.1 so it's sort of he's he's slightly it's there's always slightly more chance that he's going to be in q3 and in the points than gasly mm. I think that's that's pretty fair. So we'll move on to our next team. And from sloppy beginnings, Woking have come through in the middle furlong of the season to find some form and competence. At the same time, uncovering just what they saw in Oscar Piastri. We have not seen the best of Oscar Piastri yet. He, I mean, the biggest thing he needs to work on is tyre management, but he's got all the right ingredients to succeed. And... He's not afraid to go against the best. We've seen him fight against Verstappen, what is it, on two different separate occasions now? And the McLaren, whilst it's made huge leaps, it's not a Red Bull. No. Yet he has managed, well, both McLarens have managed at, like, at the start of the races to keep up with him. Mm. There have been times where they've had Verstappen driving very honestly. They've they've made Verstappen work for it at points. Once he's gotten away from them and gets away from them, it's a different matter. But in those opening phases, McLaren just seems to be able to get up, get gone, and get its tyres going a little quicker. And Oscar has made as good a job of that as his teammates, certainly. There's been a lot from him. And like you said, there is a lot still to see from him, I think. It's, again... A bit like Sergeant, but I guess even more so. The quantitative data that comes out of McLaren is not now representative of where they are now because they had just such a a poor season at the start. I mean, if you look at the first five rounds before Imola, both of the... So Piastri only got... He got eighth in Australia, and that was his only points finish. Lando had sixth in Australia, ninth in Azerbaijan. Yeah. And then it it got a bit better after Imola. But then once the upgrades came, 
there's just this huge leap. It's very it's almost... much a case of once he's not fighting the car, he can focus on doing what he does best. And I think he was he was lucky in his F2 years. I think he was Prema in F2, where he had a very good car. And again, was able to really finesse that sort of on-track fighting and battling and proving what he was worth. And yeah, now he's not fighting the McLaren so much. It's become apparent almost certainly I mean, why, he's, why he's there. Just looking at... If you just take his average from the last three races, which is when he had he's had the upgrades, he is qualifying on average in fourth, which really isn't bad. Well, especially, a... yeah, isn't bad, especially when you consider that what you've got up there is you can ignore P1 and P2, because in reality, that's where Verstappen and Perez would probably be going. Then after that, you've got, what, a Ferrari? Your other McLaren? Mercedes that's possibly going to be challenging for that but after that the next driver you're lining up is Oscar Piastri He's, I think he got he got a hard time I think coming into the into the season because of how he got his seat I guess mm. and then I think now that people have realised okay that wasn't really down to his fault, down to him, as to why Daniel Ricciardo got the boot. Um, it's, that's just F1, really. Mm. Um, and now they've actually sort of started getting to know him, seeing him drive. Now he's sort of getting the fan base behind him, and I think people are realising it was never what went on before he went into McLaren was never about him. Mm. It wasn't It wasn't a him thing going into McLaren. This wasn't something that he necessarily triggered or orchestrated. It was just unfortunate that that's how it paid out. And yeah, his drive has certainly proven that he was worth the hassle, I think. So if we were to, if we were to give him a letter grade, he says conscious of the fact that we're now an hour and a half in and we're barely sort of halfway through the field. Oscar Piastri, yeah. give him a grade. Uh, oh, God. Uh, a. I'm going to go back, go with you on that one, actually, and also give him an A. I think it's, it's even before the car started getting good, because obviously the upgrades went Norris, then Piastri, then Norris, then Piastri, sort of one got them, then the other when there was obviously a small round of upgrades that Oscar got when they got to Austria and the car started coming good even then. And even when it wasn't, he was still able to really follow Norris through. And Norris, as we know, has become a very competent driver. Um, so the real question then is, what do we think of Lando Norris? Now he's not fighting the car. It seems to very much be business as usual for him. It's kind of like the the glimpses that we've always seen of Lando when, because McLaren has been very up and down these past few seasons. Mm. And it's like when the car is good, Lando is good. And he always makes the most of it. Or even when the car, I guess, is bad, he's never done terrible. He's he's always been a very, very strong driver. I guess we're just seeing it even more now uh, with these upgrades. And also the fact that he's consistently being like, up there 
it's not a fluke. He is a good driver. Yeah. I think if you want an example of just how good a driver Lando is, go back and read the race report or watch back the details from, I want to say it was Sebring when he did the 24 hours of Sebring, I think it would have been alongside Fernando Alonso. And it is truly telling of exactly what he can do in a race car, especially in changing conditions. It is unbelievable quite how talented he is. And I think this season, now that car is getting good, we are seeing him sort of tiptoeing closer and closer to the sort of premier level of it. Um, 2018, here we go, 2018, um, 24 hours of Daytona, sorry. And go and have a look at the results that he was able to pull out of that because it was very impressive indeed. Um, I think ultimately Alonso did the qualifying for them. They were the only team running a certain chassis. But um, when it got to through the race, he was absolutely on it through the um, evening stints. And I think they were let down at the end by some mechanical issues. But even then, it was properly impressive drive so uh, one worth digging out um but yeah overall for norris i think if i'm gonna give him a letter grade given how well he's performed especially against that top tier for me it's gonna be the first day star of the evening really yeah i'm gonna go so can't quite coax that a star out of you just yet not yet maybe just maybe our next team might have a driver in it that can convince you to give it an A star. Um, it's taken, uh, let's see, P4 for Ferrari. If you told old man Enzo that that's where they'd be in the season, um, he'd weep so hard it'd make the purple ink from his pen run. Still, it seems uh, as though car 55 will be in Scarlet for a little longer if the rumours are to be believed. So how do we feel about Carlos Sainz? Guess who has the second best qualifying average? Is it Carlos Sainz somehow? Yes. But that really surprises me. Yeah. I I stared at the like the spreadsheet for ages and I like I kept working it out and I kept looking at it. I was like, am I doing this wrong? His average qualifying is fifth. And that's better. Well, it was the only person that's better than that is Verstappen which is just I guess a testament to how, how we uh, we overlook signs a lot and I think we ha- have the, the entire time that he's been in F1 to be honest mm. but I almost it's gonna sound weird but he I think he's been consistent in a car that's inconsistent if that makes sense. So, like, even if it's... I don't know how to explain it. Even if the car is all over the place, he's able to get pretty sort of regular numbers from it, I think is sort of the way you're looking at it. You can give him the most sort of hot and cold blowing car possible, but he's always able to get performances from it. We certainly saw that in his Renault days when it was 
really a bit of a pig of a car. It wasn't certainly wasn't the best thing out on the field, but he was always able to get it into that sort of bottom end of points, just nipping away at the points and just boom, there we go, just getting a point, getting a point, getting a point. And I think that was the consistency that um, certainly was needed from him. And I think that's something he's able to carry forwards into his time at Ferrari. He's so he's only one of four. No, let me say that again. He's got, he's basically got into Q3 11 times, which matches both Hamilton and Verstappen. Yeah. Isn't, and no one else has sort of gotten to that level, I presume. There's only one man who has got into Q3 every time and that is Fernando Alonso he's operating on a slightly different level so (laughs) other than that when you can put Sainz in the same pool as Hamilton Verstappen and Alonso I think that really is the sort of summation of what you need to know about him and yeah when you when you talk about his sort of ability to just get the results even if you if you look back at um since even his 2017 career when he was in the Toro Rosso and then moved across to Renault, he's never finished outside the top 10 in a championship. Ninth in 2017 when he shifted, 10th in 2018 when he was with Renault, and then 6th, 6th, 5th, 5th when it was um, McLaren, McLaren, Ferrari, Ferrari. Like That is pretty bang on consistency. Yeah. And especially last year where he had a a record that was peppered with podiums right through to the end as well. It's he is a driver that you can just rely on to get those numbers. It's not necessarily eye catching, but it is reliable. Yeah, he doesn't have any. You can't say, "Oh, what was his outstanding moment?" It's more that he's just consistent, mm. and that's what I would rather. I'd rather just someone who is who is consistent in my team who I know I can rely on to get those points. Yeah, only two finishes outside the points this season, Australia and Belgium. Belgium, I think, was a little bit on him. It was a bit of a careless lock-up and ascendant to La Source. And Australia, oh, that was really quite an unfair penalty. one. A massive time penalty, yeah. which was then served under the... Well, basically, as they crossed the finish line with the safety car, which sort of dropped him all the way to 12th from what might have been a podium, I want to say. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah. I think it was. It finished fourth, but received a five-second time penalty for causing a collision with Fernando Alonso. So, yeah, it would have been really close to that podium. Um, but because everyone finished within, like, five seconds of him, he dropped all the way down. Um, so, Carlos Sainz, letter grading for superior sort of reliability as a driver a b plus Ooh, that feels harsh no that's what i'm just thinking because i'm i'm dropping in an a for him there uh, i've got to say it's an a for me from for carlos signs but a b plus it's good but yeah i can see why you might not verge into that a territory but certainly the plus denotes that there's been those those moments where you've gone go on Carlos especially that qualifying record 
Yeah, precisely. He's a man you can rely on. Mm. Especially when you compare him to Charles Leclerc. <sighs> where... It's just been a really mixed season for him, hasn't it? It's, he's Sometimes... just overtaken Carlos in the standings and it's taken him a little while. I mean, it's like he's sometimes there, he sometimes isn't, which is then it's really weird because it's like whilst Carlos has been consistent and Charles has been inconsistent, Leclerc has actually beaten him more in races and in qualifying. Somehow, mm. it just, I don't understand any of like Ferrari statistics. I don't understand Ferrari in general. I don't understand what's going on because it doesn't, nothing makes sense. It's like when I did science experiments in school and I would do everything right and still come up with the wrong outcome. And my my teacher would just be like, it just is what it is. Yeah, I don't know how Charles Leclerc gets the wrong answer by completely following the method to the paper. It's a sort of, three podiums across the year obviously we had a third in Azerbaijan a second in Austria wasn't it and then a third again in Belgium like the car isn't truly terrible and it's able to get something against the Red Bull but I think the science sort of has the better average because he's only had one retirement and one 12th place finish whereas Charles had two retirements and an 11th that's possibly what sort of skews the averages a bit but at the end of the day the numbers don't lie much like Shakira's hips and Charles has more of them even if only by seven it's not a big gap but no and but it it's not... it's a big gap that it's not a big gap but it also in some respect doesn't make sense either yeah I guess because it's it, it's the podiums that Charles got. And equally the fact that when things have gone badly for Carlos, Charles has, or not, things have, no, I can't even say that, because when things go wrong for Carlos, it's not like things go brilliantly for Charles. <laughs> I think the, the only example of that is Belgium, weekend just gone, or race weekend gone, rather, where... Carlos retires and Charles gets a podium. That's the sort of starkest contrast there is on paper. It's, oh, it's such a tricky one to read. Mm. I think for me, Charles Leclerc this season, it's not been his best to be for me. I was going to say C+. Because I think, yes, he's got those podiums. He's done well. I think sometimes... The mistakes he's made is because he's actually really pushing the car. And I feel like you can't fault him for that. But it's just that he's just a bit inconsistent for me. There should come a point where you know the limitations of what you've got and what you can achieve with that, I think. And yeah, that's mixed bag there for Charles Leclerc. So we move ahead to the next team on our list and going from the surprise of the season to a strong midfield team has very much been the storyline for Aston Martin this season. Do we reckon they could have done better if not for Lance Stroll? 
it's such a strange one, isn't it? Because if you think at the start of the year, he broke his wrist and was incredibly determined to get back in that car. Where's it gone? His stats are pretty bad compared to Alonso's. I mean, Alonso's qualifying on average 5.6, Stroll 10.2. Racing Alonso's 4.4, Stroll 8.6. In quali, it's 10 to Alonso, 2 to Stroll which is the same as Red Bull and McLaren, actually. Mm. And then in races, it's 11 to 1, which is the worst ratio of them all. Mm. It's... I mean, Fernando Alonso is a machine. Yeah, uh, you do have to remember at the end of the day, he is Fernando Alonso. He is a two-time world champion for a reason. You're, He's going to be good. Mm, such a hard one to really sort of say but the the big question that you then ask yourself is would they have done better if they'd put Drogovic in who came through Formula 2 as an absolute weapon and the last time we saw a driver do that and then end up in a fairly good chassis was Oscar Piastri would Drogovic a driver who had all the talent coming into this season in a car that seemed to do everything to your beck and call to the point that you could just drive around the outside of Lewis Hamilton like it wasn't a problem. Do we think that Drogovic could have done better in those opening races than Stroll did? I so wish we got to see it. Because then we'd have a base to go off of. Um... (sighs) Maybe? I don't know. It's such a tricky one because you can't directly compare Stroll to Alonso. They are it's they are chalk and cheese, but there's no one else you can really put Stroll against. He's just sort of on his own, and that also comes in when you look at the points. He's on forty-seven points. He's a long way adrift of Norris ahead of him now. After Norris bagged two podiums, and currently hot on his heels is vaguely Esteban Ocon, just over no twelve points shy of him. So it's I want to see something from him. Like I want, I want that determination back. Yeah, I want. Give me something. Just give me anything, Lance. And I think for me, that is the definition of a D grade. Yeah, especially given, given the machinery he has or had, certainly at the start of the season when the car was sort of the second fastest thing on the grid. It's not necessarily kept up development-wise, but certainly at that point in time, once he knew that his wrists were back on form and his... And, like, through that span where Alonso was getting P3, P3, P4, P3, P2, that span there, as far as Monaco, possibly even Canada, where he got a P2 as well, that Aston Martin was unstoppable. Where was Lance that entire time? P6, retired, P4, P7, 12, retired, 6, 9, 9. Just not. Sebastian Vettel did all the development work, gave you a fantastic chassis, and you frittered it away. It's almost disrespectful. So the real question then is, if we've 
pound Lance Stroll, what do we think of his teammate? Somehow still in third place in the standings, over 100 points clear of Lance. I mean, as I said earlier, the only driver to make every Q3 appearance, and he has more podiums than Mercedes combined. Yeah. <laughs> That's what, six for Alonso, isn't it? And six it's for one, Alonso. Two, five for... Um, Mercedes, yeah. Yeah. Two seconds and a fourth for uh, Fernando Alonso, and then Mercedes is two seconds and three thirds. He's a point ahead of Hamilton, and he's just... It's, it's tricky to think what more he could do get from that car, and even now it's not being developed at the same rate as those around it. It's still a really good drive, and it, the whole half, the first half of the season has been phenomenal. It has. I think the one thing we needed was a win for me to give it an A star, but thus far it's an A for me for Fernando Alonso. Oh, see, I'm going to give him an A star. You, you, give, him, you think, give him that A star. I will. I don't, I don't <laughs> think a race win was in his, in his grasp. But he's been absolutely phenomenal. I think that possibly had we had a race that had panned out a bit differently, we would have almost certainly seen, especially in that early stage of Fernando Alonso win. But I think that for me, that's the one thing I'd have really liked to have seen was just him orchestrate something a bit different, pick a slightly different strategy, work with the team to really figure out something when they knew the qualifying was good. But yeah, it's... Biggest split of between um, drivers outside of the Red Bull pairing is Alonso and Stroll. Mm-hmm. And I think points-wise, and I think Perez is lucky that he's second to Max's first, whereas with Alonso and Stroll, it's far more obvious because it's third and ninth. Mm. Not good, Lance. So yeah. scrolls back up notes. Um, Anyway, we move on to our next team. And after a fumbled start to the year and a reluctance to hit the button that says side pod version 2.0, somehow Mercedes are up into P2 in the standings. And the question is, though, what has happened to the form of George Russell? He was absolutely on fire last season and now it's, it's gone away. Yeah, I mean, it's not even always a given that he'll get into Q3. I mean, he's missed it. Four times, albeit... How many times has he missed Q2? So he has had one Q1 appearance, three Q2 appearances, and then eight Q3. So sometimes he's not even getting out of Q1 or Q... which is telling. I mean, uh, I will let him off of Hungary because that wasn't all his fault. No, that was bad timings around getting a lap in and traffic, I think, wasn't it? Yes. But at the same time, Hamilton has out-qualified Russell seven times and finished the race in a higher position than Russell nine times. He's got that that one third place in Spain, but Hamilton still has four podiums. I mean... 
is it down to Russell struggling a bit or is Hamilton's form back? I think this is possibly the latter. I think it's easy to have written off Hamilton last season, but you forget the amount of development work he was doing. Like he was the guy that had all the the guinea pig setups, the test chassis and everything. And they just left George Russell to get acquainted with the team and get used to the setup. And that, if anything, gave us a false confidence in Russell's performance. I don't want to say that he was bad or that he's a terrible driver because he is not. But that ultimately the comparison that you were able to draw from last year's data was worth taking with a pinch of salt it seems and certainly what we've seen from Lewis this season suggests that now that the shoe's not necessarily on the foot but both are fighting with equal machinery it's going to take George a little time to really get up there to be able to take the battle to Lewis at least. I mean Russell has also had two DNFs but I mean as well I don't think we should forget that this is still a very difficult car that Mercedes are still trying to work out. Yeah, they're still not overly familiar with the chassis. I think one of his DNFs was an engine failure. He blew a turbo in Australia, but Canada was certainly a retirement of his own accord, which is probably where that becomes a bit more interesting. He sort of not necessarily spat it into the wall, but had that weird moment going through one of the chicanes where he sort of clipped it, bounced it into the wall, limped it home and retired. So it's, it's good driving for a team that doesn't fully understand their chassis but I still think we should be seeing more from George I think for me it's been a a solid B tier season so far I was going to go C plus I think he should be a bit nearer to Hamilton um you look. Uh... Yeah, I mean he's not he's not far off. In fairness, um, points against one hundred and forty-eight. That's two race wins difference, basically. Yeah, I mean I'm looking at Silverstone when Hamilton got his third. Russell was fifth. Mm. I'd I'd like to see. I guess Russell fighting for podiums a bit more or it looking more likely that he would he's in a podium contention. But I I don't we haven't really seen that apart from Spain. Yeah. I mean when you look at it, obviously Bahrain, Hamilton fifth, Russell seventh. So there's only a little bit of a gap between them. Um, and equally the car separating it was Lance Stroll in a firecracker Aston Martin Saudi Arabia uh, fifth for Hamilton fourth for Russell shoes on the other foot and then Hamilton gets a podium in Australia Russell retires that's where we start to see the big diversion in that point as well I think when when you retired and scored nothing and your teammates on the podium that's when the gaps open Azerbaijan at six and an eighth so again there's only two points or two places between them Miami six and a fourth the other way round but so Russell ahead of Hamilton, but again, it's two points between them. Monaco, we've got fourth and a fifth, one place between them. Spain, both on the podium, second and third. Then Canada, it's another unfortunate. You retire in your teammate podiums. Austria, eighth and a seventh, so barely anything between them. Britain, third and a fifth. Again, it's that podium, but then you're just off the podium. Fourth and a sixth in Hungary and a fourth and a sixth again in Belgium. He's never too far off, but 
he's off and i think that's where the main yeah. issue is yeah then what yeah, does that the, say um it's australia and canada that's really hurt him isn't it with the two dnfs which mm. is coincidentally the times that hamilton has got on the podium mm. that's got to hurt but now he's back on form and isn't running the guinea pig setups. Someone is just a point shy of his old sparring partner, and that person is Lewis Hamilton. Like we said, he's he's a point off Fernando Alonso. It's not doing too badly. No, and like signs, he has only missed out on Q three once. Which race weekend was that? And was there an underlying reason? He. Missed it was Miami with he was 13th. Ooh. Was that for a weirdly sort of red flagged session or something? I can't remember. Let's have a quick check. Uh, I mean it's red flagged right at the end, but you wouldn't have been in, Q2, in that. Yeah. No, Q3. Three. It, yeah, Q3 it was red flagged, yeah, because we got obviously Verstappen and Bottas never set times in that one, wasn't yeah. it? Um, yeah, he was behind the Hulkenberg and Albon in Q2 in Miami. Um, Miami is not his track, it just seems like it wasn't his, yeah, just wasn't his day, unfortunately. So, but overall, as a Lewis Hamilton performance, I mean, he's consistently been in the points. Yeah. And, and it's he's almost never dropped below six. Eight. 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 Oh yeah, of course, eighth Austria. But but other than that, yeah, it's six six or above. Yeah, with the exception of one race out of twelve. I think that's a that's a fair stat to sort of look at and go, that is a solid for me, A grade drive. Yeah, it's what an average finish of four point three. Which is the same as Perez, actually. And when you think about the machinery, yeah, the machinery Perez has, you would expect far higher. So, yeah, so I'm going to give him an A2. Okay, there's two A's for Lewis Hamilton, which uh, gives him eight. And that leaves us with two last drivers Red Bull last for once on our list at least it is Red Bull um, seemingly untouchable it really is a case of who can make the best job of coming second um, something that for spell was a big ask for Sergio Perez uh, he's only managed to get out of Q1 six times uh, this makes his average qualifying position 9.3 which obviously gives him a lot to do come race day. And apart from Monaco, he has managed to finish in the points every race, but is finishing in the points every race when your teammate has won 10 races good enough? I think those times when your teammate didn't win a race, you were the winner, is at least some redemption. But even then, when you look at the statistics, when you look at the line of what Verstappen's able to achieve on Wikipedia, it's that sort of nice yellowy sort of streak all the way across, punctuated by two grey blobs per second. You'd be expecting two grey blobs for Perez all the way through. 
visually, I just want to go and have a look and see what would happen if I flick a look at that and compared it to 2016, when you had two teammates going absolutely tooth and nail for a championship. I mean, Perez only just has just over half of Verstappen's podiums. So Perez has got seven podiums, Verstappen 12. Mm. Verstappen's podiumed in every race. <sighs> Perhaps 2016 isn't the best example of that because it wasn't a case of when Rosberg won, Hamilton was always second and or vice versa, which is interesting. Perhaps it's worth looking at more of a Hamilton Bottas season? No, because it's so tricky to try and find a, a year when there was such a level of dominance from the Mercedes when there wasn't another driver challenging it. 2017, Seb's in the, in the mix. Um, you also have like the one off or like two, three races where Red Bull would then win. Yeah, this level of dominance is so tricky to try and get a metric against. I mean, Red Bull have more podiums than all the teams combined currently. And they're the only team to have no DNFs. Yeah. Here we go. So I've finally gotten to, what year is this? 2019. To get anything that's looking vaguely similar to what we're looking at at the moment, where it's been sort of big Hamilton domination streak and pretty much all the time Bottas, at least as far as the British Grand Prix, has been on the podium, either in second or third, bar Canada where he was fourth, which I think is pretty pretty equitable to what we're seeing this year. It's, I think the bar has been set so high that Perez is struggling to look good against it. He's doing getting the results. He's there. He's stopping anyone else getting close. He's banging in the rest of the points for the team, but... Could another driver be scoring more points? I think that's what you've really got to start questioning at this point is, could you put another driver into that seat and would they be scoring more? I mean, in terms of Q1, both of those ones where he hasn't got out of Q1, he's been 20th. And then when he's in Q2, two of those times it's been 15th. So he's been the slowest. Scraping his way through. Were those times when they knew he'd be taking um, upgrades or uh, new parts at least? So there'd be sort of grid penalties. No. Mm. I mean, Monaco, he crashed. Yeah. 20th. Australia, I can't remember what happened to him to be 20th. Ooh. Australia 2023 in qualifying, um, locked up, caused a red flag, got stuck in gravel, and then was unable to set a representative time. Mm. Um, he didn't actually have a time on the board and was allowed to race at Stewart's discretion. Yeah. Which, um, when your teammate is setting lap times that are over two tenths of a second faster than anyone else in Q3 and over half a second faster than anyone else in Q2 or just there or thereabouts, you're looking like a bit of a numpty. Yeah, so quarter of a second faster than anyone in Q2 rather. Yeah, uh, the 215th 
positions were one after the other, Australia and Great Britain. Mm. 12th in Canada, 11th in Spain. Just hasn't been a great drive from Perez. He's no. been able to recover it, which has sort of yes. kept him looking good, but regardless, it's not been great. It's not, not compared to the form we have previously seen from him and what we know he can do. So letter grade for Sergio Perez. Let's keep this moving as we tip over the two hour mark. Just about all <laughs> just about to Yeah. Given what he should be able to achieve. Yeah. It's it's not it's not good enough. Even if I'd I'd expect you to get into Q three. Most of the, yeah. Q2 all the time, certainly, and Q3 most of the time at least, allowing for problems and issues to arise, because obviously even that's caught Verstappen out once or twice, Miami, for example, but even then, he'd at least made it into Q3. So, that leaves one driver left to a point some grading to, streaking away into the distance, barely breaking a sweat with nary a foot wrong all season, Max Verstappen. How the hell do you remark on this? Guess his qualifying average. Just It's gonna be something like 1.2 or something, isn't it? Third. Really? Because he had he got Miami Denset. Saudi Arabia. Uh, and yeah. in Miami. Jeez, just those two results really dented him that badly? Yeah. Yeah. His race is 1.2. Hmm. Not a surprise there at all, given that it's either been first or second. Yes, but I mean, still absolute dominance. I mean, he's winning everything. He even... He's even got what he's he's got the most fastest laps of six. Yeah, I think it's what Perez and Hamilton are the closest with two two apiece, and he even current he's currently holds joint lead for how many times a driver has been voted driver of the day. Like he's just about winning everything. It, Apart every, from the most which Ocon is. Yeah, every measurable metric of positivity is topping out, really. Yep. I mean, if we look at the race average, he's averaging at 1.2. Mm. Perez and Hamilton are then the joint second closest with 4.3, Alonso 4.4. So they're still racing a race average, they're off the podium, whilst Verstappen will always be on the on podium. The podium, yeah. Like he is statistically going to be on the podium and by and large always on the top step of it. He can't you can't do better than that. And I think given the things that we've seen this race season, you cannot have asked for more from him. No, I mean, just, there just were times when they were asking less of him. 
yeah, perhaps in qualifying, there were times when they would the team were genuinely asking less of him when it came to things like fastest laps, Spain and Spa jumped to mind. Like, please just bring the car home and don't do something daft. And he's gone on side quests with drivers driver of the day and fastest laps. As a teacher, he's the one kid you hate teaching because you can't think of a way of pushing him in your class. Yeah. So you just sort of have to sit there handing back his scores going, yep, 10 out of 10, A star. I can't I can't think of a thing to give you that will make you challenge, that will challenge you short of putting him in an F2 car and expecting him to do well. <laughs> I don't know. I... <sighs> F1's looking at getting rid of DRS in qualifying just to try and make it interesting. <laughs> <sighs> but it, you're still going to have the same outcome. He might not be getting the pole every weekend. It'll just be more Max Verstappen converts Charles Leclerc poles to wins. But he's still getting the wins at the end of the day, and that's where the points are. That's what the final result is decided off at the end of the season. There is nothing you can give him short of an A star. Yeah, I agree. I don't he's give done. him full mark, but I give him an A star because also you don't need full marks to get an A, a star. You just need ninety percent and above. Or ninety-five, or depends really how everything's scored. But yeah, like there is Saudi Arabia coming back from that far back on the grid, especially when your teammate was starting from pole. I think is a huge ask. And um, was it like lap twenty-five? Wasn't it? He got into second place. It was something ridiculously early, like the time that he eventually got up to that point. Let's see if it's written down on like the race report or something. Because it uh, ended up being that the grid stayed pretty close together, so he was able to get them one by one very quickly. Mm, the, the, everything stayed quite bunched, really. Yeah. Uh, Here we go. Um, the safety car left the track at the end of the end of lap 20 to allow normal racing to resume. Perez led from Alonso ahead of Russell in third and Verstappen now fourth. This is lap 20. Sainz completed the top five. Over the next two laps, Hamilton passed Sainz for fifth place and Verstappen Russell for third, respectively. So we're now on lap 22 and Verstappen's in third. At the end of the following lap, Verstappen passed Alonso to move into second place. So lap 23. Out of a um, fifty-lap race, so it took him half the race to get there, and then spent the rest of it just sort of chasing down his teammate, who he finished five seconds off the pace from. But then, when you look at their grid positions, you're like, oh. And then you look at the gap back from Verstappen to Alonso in third, where it goes: Sergio Perez completed the race in one hour twenty-one minutes and fourteen point eight nine four seconds. 5.3 seconds later, Verstappen crosses the line. 20.7 seconds later, Fernando Alonso crosses the line. It's such a huge gulf that he's able to pull out, and the performance delta that Red Bull has over everything else in the field is phenomenal. So it's, yeah, little wonder we can do but give him the perfect score of two A stars, which gives him 18 points. So he's, he, he even wins this. Yeah. He, he wins He wins this. Congratulations. Um, who comes the closest to him? Lando, Lando Norris. Norris. 
with an A star and an A. Fernando Alonso. Um, Fernando Alonso, A star and an A in, with 17 as well. Um, Oscar Piastri and Hamilton. Hamilton come pretty close, both with A's, as does uh, Albon's a little far off with an A and a B plus. Mm. We've got two final questions, though. Whose form has disappointed you the most? As a team or driver? As a driver. Kevin Magnussen. Okay. What about you? It's got to be Lance Stroll. Given the machinery that he's been provided with, yeah, he really ought to have done better, I feel. So we'll move into two positive notes to end on. Whose form has impressed you the most so far? Oscar Piastri. I think that's quite fair. He had a quiet start to the season, but has really pulled it out of the bag. I'm going to say Alex Albon. I maintain that there's a reason why I gave him an A early on. And I think there's a little more from him. I want to see him push a little bit harder, really drive the team, take up that lead role. But for the moment, his form has been absolutely phenomenal. The final question then is one of improvement. Who do you reckon will come good in the second half of the season? What do you mean by come good? Who do we think we're going to see a bit of an uptick in performance from? Which driver is going to listen to this and go, you know what? They're right. I should be doing better. Brief mm. pause while anyway thinks through A heavy thinking face on there. Charlotte Claire. I'm going to go for a bit of a left field option here. Bear with me. Pierre Gasly. I wouldn't say that was left field. I, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah? Yeah. So you're going for Charles Leclerc and I'm going for Pierre Gasly. I reckon there's scope for him to improve and I reckon that he's really going to kick on and just sort of ignore the tumult above him in Alpine's management and just go, I'm doing better. Yeah. I wish I didn't forget about Alpine when I was thinking because I wish I said that. It's always the way. Anyway, <laughs> that is all we have time for. I say all we have time for. We've been talking for about two hours now and I'm surprised my voice has lasted the entire thing. Um, we'll be back probably with some more off-season content or mid-season content. Um, we will have a preview post coming up on the social media account in the coming days or should be up possibly when you listen to this for the Silverstone Festival. Uh, Ellie May and I are going to hopefully be heading off there to enjoy three days of classic motor racing action. Um, but in the meantime, if you want more of us, you can obviously find the podcast across the social media accounts. And Ellie May, where can the people find you? They can find me doing the graphics on our Instagram account, or you can find us on TikTok. There, I mean, it's like two weeks old now, but it there is a Formula E post for when I went, but this is the first time I've been on the podcast since to promote it. Fair enough. And if you want more of me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Jesse on Cars. You can also find me again on TikTok because I've started making those now. Um, so also as at Jesse on Cars. So please go find me there. Like, comment, subscribe, all the usual guff. And um, yeah, we'll be back with some classic motor racing content, hopefully in a few weeks time. 